Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Isaiah, and Isaiah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jechonia, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jechoniah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. The word of the Lord. I was joking back there with uh, Aaron saying, man, you know, he's like, what did Jane do to you? (laughs) Uh, we won't get into that uh, this morning, but uh, pay, payback uh, coming on the last day of the year. But we, we went and saved the best for last. And seriously, I'm excited to preach um, this text because it is a really, really, really rich one for understanding the gospel. And we're going to be with Matthew um, through, through Easter. And so we begin here at the beginning. Matt kicked us off last week as part of, you know, leading up to Christmas narrative with Joseph. But, but, but we skipped over these first 17 verses, which is not appropriate because these verses are wonderful. And these verses lead me to think of this. So here's a prompt. Introduce yourself. Introduce yourself. It's it's, it's a really simple prompt, but it's one that honestly can lead us in a thousand different directions. How do you introduce yourself? Okay. Well, my name is David Berge. So you always start with your name, okay? I think that's like a universally agreed upon thing. When you introduce yourself, you at least have to include your name. But where you go from that, go next from there, it's, it's, a, it's a choose it your own adventure. It's like that new Netflix show. Matt, what's it called? Is he here? He, what is it? Bandersnatch. It's like Bandersnatch. You get to pick where you go in this adventure. And so where do you go next? Uh, uh, you, you're, you, you could share your strengths, find your strengths, maybe. Um, 
Mine are learner, intellection, maximizer, input, and achiever. That's okay. Uh, your Enneagram number, uh, I'm, I'm a seven, but to my mind, that's like the same as sharing your astrological sign. Uh, 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 sorry to the Enneagram fans out there. Uh, uh, how about where you're from? I'm Minneapolis in my case. Uh, what do you do? Uh, a pastor in my case. Uh, where you went to school? Kenny Elementary in my case. Uh, 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 your family, you've got to include your family. So there's my wife, Amy, and my kids, Gregory, Peter, and Kyle. Uh, and then there's, of course, my sister, Laura, and my mom and dad, Paul and Jane. And then there's my grandparents, Patricia and Lyle on my mom's side, and, and Irene and Olaf on my dad's side. And then on, on, on my mom's grandma's, uh, or on my grandma's side, there's her parents, Agnes and Lloyd. And I can't exactly remember the names of any of my other great-grandparents. I'm sure some of you are breathing a sigh of relief at that point. Uh, and it's also actually a healthy reminder for us that by the fourth generation that comes after us, most of us are going to be completely forgotten. And so when we're introducing ourselves and we're telling people who we are, none of us would do what Matthew does and give this big list of names for Jesus' family tree. That's how he chooses to begin his gospel. And, and we know there's at least three other ways that one can begin a gospel. We've got Mark, who he jumps right in on the action. We've got John the Baptist. And, and then we've got Luke, who begins with the story of a miraculous birth, two of them, and, and the first one being uh, the, the conception of John the Baptist. And, and then we've got John, who starts his gospel with this beautiful poetic language of in the beginning was the word. And truth be told, those other gospel beginnings are a lot more interesting at first glance. Think of how many people have, have decided, you know, it's, it's New Year, so it's time for New Year's resolution. So maybe someone said, I'm going to read the Bible, but the Old Testament is intimidating. So, you know, I'm going to read the New Testament. I'm going to start doing that. I resolved to do that. And so they open to the first page of their New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. And the first thing that they are greeted with is this list of names many of which uh, they can't pronounce, and even more of which they have no idea who these people are. But Matthew starts with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we get this long list of names, and this is where I really think it helps to read in the King James Version, because, you know, we, we, we get a kind of smoother or easier for us to think of translation, the son of, the son of, but if we're reading in the King James, we get begat, 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 over and over again. We get a bunch of begats. But there's really something interesting happening in this first verse, and it's helpful to know the Greek here, and here's the beautiful thing about this Greek. It's the kind of Greek that is really closely related to English, so we don't even need to know the language to understand what's happening on here, but we can just hear it in the language it, it, it itself. And so this is how Matthew begins. He begins, uh, Biblios, okay, that sounds like a book. So Biblios, and then here is where it gets really interesting in this second word. Biblios Genesios. What does that sound like? Genesis, that sounds like Genesis. Biblios Genesios, Jesu Christu. In other words, it's the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. And so just as our Old Testaments begin with a book of Genesis, so too does the new. 
And the Old Testament begins with the story of God creating the heavens and the earth, and then jumps right into the story of our first ancestor, Adam. And so, too, the New Testament begins with the story of creation, but of new creation. And the second Adam, the one who came to make all things new and to reverse the curse of the first and so by beginning with this genealogy, what, what Matthew is doing is he, he's signaling to us that the story of Jesus, it, it's not just a continuation of what came before, but it's really a, a, a culmination, a, a climax of a story that began all the way back in Genesis. Matthew's interpretation of sacred history hinges upon the idea that the great story of God and his people, it's leading somewhere. But it hadn't gotten to where it needed to go Yet. Some have said that the, the Old Testament is like a story that's in search of an ending. And Matthew says Jesus is, is the proper ending to that story, and, and the story of Jesus' life is the beginning of a whole new era. It, it, it's like a sequel that's even better than the original. It's like the Godfather and the Godfather Part Two. Sticking with that verse, first verse still, we're told that Jesus was also the son of David and the son of Abraham. And these are really the two figures who were the focus of God's great promises in the Old Testament. God, God promised uh, Abraham that he would make of his, his seed, his children, a, a great nation, and, and that through them, all the people on earth, every nation is going to be blessed and God promised that David, that one of his offspring would, would rule forever, that he would sit on the throne of the nation forever. And when the Old Testament ends, you know, we close Malachi. Those promises had seemed to fizzle out. Abraham's children were, were the farthest thing from a great nation. In fact, they didn't even have a nation of their own anymore. They were in exile. They hadn't blessed all the nations of the earth. They had, in fact, been crushed by the great powers of the earth. And there was no heir of David on the throne. David's successors had been a mixture of good and mostly bad kings, and now there was no king, and the king who was ruling, who went by the name of Herod, called the king of the Jews, had no Davidic blood at all. So the question is, what, what happened to those promises? And Matthew is saying, with Jesus, God is starting something new, but he's doing so in such a way that he's picking up the threads of what came before, and he's weaving them into an even more beautiful tapestry. And so as we, we near the end of another solar year and we resolve to make changes in the new year, it bears repeating that for Matthew, the only new beginning that matters starts with Jesus Christ. And the only change in the calendar that really matters is, is the one that happened when, when time shifted from B.C. to A.D., before Christ to Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And so if we want a new beginning, we're going to have to start here. And if we want to understand the meaning of existence, we're going to have to understand Jesus.
And so Matthew, he isn't simply providing us with a list of names in order to trace Jesus' pedigree so that we know that he truly belongs to the house and line of David and to Abraham's family, which are the requisite, requisite qualifications one needs to you know, apply for the job of Messiah. Of course he's doing that, but he's doing so much more. With this list of names, he's sharing the gospel in, in a kind of protean form and so even this list of names and, and these numbers of generations, they are themselves a part of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at three things about this genealogy this morning and how they can shape our understanding of the good news. We're going to look at, at the numbers in this genealogy, the names that are in it, and lastly, the fact that it is news. So numbers, names, news. Wonderful alliteration. All right, so first, some of the numbers that Matthew uses. In the last verse of our reading, it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So our first number is 14 times 3. Quick math, that equals 42. There we go, 42. There's a couple ways you can slice that. But first, when we see this 3 times 14 we see that Matthew is very carefully laying out that there are these three eras of sacred history, each comprised of 14 generations, and there's this beautiful symmetry there. And in order to achieve that, Matthew has had to, you know, kind of leave out some names and, 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 and craft this to his own way, because his point is not to provide some exhaustive list of Jesus' ancestors, but to show that history has a shape to it. History isn't just some random assortment of meaningless events that follow one after the other, leading nowhere, as, as a materialist would believe, or this endless cycle repeating itself like some of the ancients believed. The idea of progress, of history moving somewhere in history, it, it, it's, it's a deeply Christian one. And that history has a meaning and a direction given to it by God that all of this is going somewhere, that's just something that Matthew is telling us with these 14 generations. And, and we can think of these eras as he's presenting them. They're like this slanted N. So, you know, we have first, we have, you know, Abraham to David, and we, we get the rise of humanity and of God's people. And then from David uh, uh, to the deportation, it's, it's this fall in, into sin and disobedience. And then these next 14 generations, they lead us. It's like the stock market. You want to see it go, you know, up and to the right forever. And that's what this last era that culminates with Jesus Christ, who then begins, you know, this, this fourth 14 that has no end. A new generation, endless and without number. Our next number is closely related to the first. And, and another way we can think about that 42 is not three times 14, but six times seven. And in Hebrew, the number of completion and of rest is Seven. And the seventh seven in the Old Testament is profoundly connected with this idea of jubilee. You know, on the seventh seven, every 49 years, there's this great jubilee that's supposed to take place where, where every debt is canceled. And if you had to sell off your land, your family land, in order to make it, well, it gets given back to you. And everyone who has, has sold himself into slavery or, or you know, um, uh, servanthood, they are released and so in Matthew's accounting, Jesus is the seventh 
seventh. He launches this new epoch of ultimate perfect Sabbath rest. The eternal jubilee is beginning. And one more number for you this morning, and that number is 39. And that's the number of times that the verb for begat occurs in our passage. You know, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judah, and on and on and on it goes until we get to, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary. And if we were continuing in this pattern, we'd expect, and Joseph begat Jesus. But that's not what happens. We're missing a begat. Instead, we get Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. What's going on with our missing begat? See, already in this genealogy, Matthew is pointing to Jesus' divine origin and his divine identity. Yes, he belongs to this line, but he's no ordinary person. He is, in the words of Hark the Herald Angel sing, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Or in the words of, of, of the part of the Nicene Creed that we're going to say this morning after communion, Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. That's where our missing begat is. And that's what it points us to. It got taken from Matthew and put in the Nicene Creed. So the point of all of this, of all of Matthew's focus on number in these first 17 verses is this. He's saying that when you add up history, you get the bottom line. It all adds up to Jesus Christ. So those are the numbers. Now how about those names? And, you know, it would be interesting to do a survey uh, uh, and see how many of those names you recognize or could describe a little bit of narrative detail of who they are in the Bible. Probably in that first batch, you recognized a few of them. Those are kind of some of the more familiar names in Scripture. The second batch of 14, couple. And the last one, I mean, until we get to Joseph, it's like there's not much to remember. But what's striking about this list of names is, is five ones that are included, these five women, counting Mary. And, but for our purposes, the most important are the four who come before her in that list of the first 14 generations. And, and what's striking about this is that women didn't belong in genealogies. Families were traced patrilinearly. You know, was, their presence here means something. It'd be like opening a yearbook from Princeton University in the 1920s and seeing a face of a few women, because... You, Princeton didn't admit women until 1969. So you go, they must be in here for a reason. I want to know their story. I want to know what's happening here. And so Matthew, he's really doing something here by including these women. And, and these aren't the women that you'd expect. These aren't the great matriarchs of Israel, uh, Sarah and Rebecca and Leah and Rachel. You know, these were women with colorful stories. The first woman to show up is Tamar. Tamar was a Canaanite. And two times she was married to one of Judah's sons before they died. And then Judah was supposed to, according to the law of uh, Lev, Leverite marriage, give her, or Leverite marriage, sorry, give her to his youngest son, but he refused to do so. So Tamar 
was going to be left in the lurch, so she took matters into her own hand. She veiled herself, pretended to be a prostitute, trusting that Judah would not pass up that opportunity, and she was right, slept with him, became pregnant with twins. And when Judah found out what had happened, he had to admit that she was more righteous than he. And the next woman in this list is Rahab who lived in the city of Jericho. She was a prostitute, and she was the one who, who, who protected the Israelite spies in her home when they snuck into that city, and she helped them escape. And so when the walls of Jericho came a-tumbling down, she and her family were spared. And the third woman is Ruth, the Moabite, who was married to an Israelite who died. And, and, and we got to understand that Moabites were hated by Israelites. They were sworn enemies. In fact, the law of Moses banned Moabites from the sanctuary for 10 generations. But, you know, Ruth is going to go back to Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Naomi says, don't join me. I have nothing. There's nothing for you there. Go back to your own people. Get remarried. Restart your life. And then Ruth says these beautiful words to her. She says, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do, to, do so to me and more. If anything but death parts me from you. So Ruth goes back. She, she lays at Boaz's feet on the threshing room floor, a, a fairly forward act. And eventually they get married and have a son named Jesse, who in turn had a son named David. And the fourth woman, who isn't named, but we know her by her name, Bathsheba, here she's referred to as Uriah's wife, I think probably to draw attention to the fact that she was married to a Hittite, another foreigner, famous for the adultery perpetrated upon her by David, and then getting pregnant and her husband being killed to cover the crime. She also became the mother of Solomon, Israel's most powerful king. And so we can ask, what is going on here? Why is Matthew including these women, of all the women that he could include, in this genealogy? And much has been made, much too much to my mind, of the scandalous past of these women. You know, and I think this does apply to Rahab and, and Tamar, one being a prostitute, the other pretending to be one. But all of these women are treated in, in the biblical narrative itself as being in the right. And Matthew includes several men, particularly in the list of kings in the second set of 14, who were notorious for their wickedness. I mean, just terrible. So it's true that this list of names shows us something about the gospel. And it is true, as Martin Luther said when he was preaching on this passage, oh, Christ is not ashamed of the kind of per Christ is not the kind of person who is ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. This has less to do with the women and more, I think, to do with the really, really bad men. But beyond that, what this genealogy, and, and particularly the inclusion of these women illustrates, is Paul's great declaration in Galatians 3 that in Christ there is no longer Jew nor Greek Slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Right? There's no longer Jew nor Greek. What do all these women have in common? They're foreigners. They're outsiders. They don't belong to the people of God by ethnicity. They get adopted in by grace. And there's neither male nor female. These women are included in the genealogy because the gospel is for everyone. 
And we see time and time again that playing out in the gospel stories of Jesus' life and particularly his care and concern for women in a culture that valued them less than men. And lastly, these women all help us understand Mary. Because what they all have in common too is that they became pregnant by men who were not their husbands, but in so doing, they carried the promise of God forward. Mary, she became pregnant under difficult circumstances, not by her husband. Her pregnancy was unexpected and it was fraught with misunderstanding and risk, but she is yet another example in, in a long line of the always surprising and always transformative grace of God. All right, so we've looked at the numbers, we've looked at the names, and lastly and briefly, I want to close with the fact that another thing that's striking about this genealogy is that it is news. Matthew doesn't begin this story with, you know, once upon a time or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Matthew wants us to understand that the story of Jesus isn't a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's not a legend, a a timeless example of timeless truths that bear no relationship to human history like Arthur and his knights or, or the great Greek heroes of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Luke has this very human chain connecting Jesus to very real human history because at its heart, Christianity is not good advice. It's good news. You know, the point of good advice is this. You should do this or avoid doing that in order for things to go well for you. That's where myths come in, and they're very valuable for that. Be noble and chivalrous like, like Arthur and his knights. Or be careful to not expose your Achilles' heel. But the point of Christianity isn't to tell us what to do. It's to announce what Jesus Christ has already done. And I've heard the, the, the difference illustrated in this way. So imagine that you're hearing that an invading army is coming. If that were the situation, what you would need is advice. All right, what do we do to protect ourselves? Or should we go to hide? Now, you know, how should we fortify? How should we prepare for what's going to happen? But then imagine that the invading army has been defeated. What would you need then? You would need news. You'd need to receive that news, and then you'd need to share that news with other people using messengers. There's nothing at all that you need to do or nothing that you can do, but spread the word and celebrate, which is a good definition of what it means to live a Christian life. We share the good news in word and in action, and we celebrate God's grace and God's victory together. Good advice says do, but the gospel says done. And so in the year ahead, as we walk with Jesus through Matthew, let us resolve and be mindful to spread the word and to celebrate together. So happy new year. In 2019, I resolve to do nothing. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.